they would do a good job getting even better outcomes by helping people do the big heavy lifting, like cognitively heavy lifting tasks when people are at their peak rather than when people are at their worst, which for teenagers is generally in the morning. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. It's my delight today to be speaking with Dr. Amantha Imber. Amantha is an organizational psychologist and founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. Her thoughts have appeared in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Entrepreneur and and Fast Company, And she's the author of two best-selling books, The Creativity Formula and The Innovation Formula. She's also the co-creator of the Australian Financial Review's Most Innovative Companies list and the Australian Financial Review Boss Best Places to Work list. She's worked with companies like Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, Atlassian, ComBank, and many others, all about the way that we reinvent the way that we approach work. Amantha, it's a delight to be speaking with you. Good to be here. My first question, and oh, I'm so excited, is what's something that you've learned recently as an avid learner, um, something that you've just noticed? Gosh, I feel like my learning is very influenced by what I'm reading. Um, and like, for example, the last book I read was last week, uh, and I can actually hold it up, which is great for podcast listeners, visuals, um, <laughs> is, uh, is Cal Newport's latest book, A World Without Email. And mm. I'm a huge Cal Newport fan. Yeah, His work has influenced how I work. Yeah, uh, aren't we all? He's just great. Um, and I loved A World Without Email, and I interviewed him um, for my own podcast, How I Work, a few days ago. And so I think that's really got me thinking about how can workplaces, whether they be a big bank through to a school out in regional Victoria, um, how can they design their workflows and processes to dramatically reduce the interruptions and unscheduled communication that bombards our day and causes us to constantly be task switching and context switching, which is just so detrimental for us to producing high quality thinking. So that is what I'm consumed with at the moment. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, And of course, you know, from a learning perspective, you know, the idea of depth in learning or, you know, a world without distractions, you know, in in the attention economy is is quite a challenge, I think, to design for. Uh, But I'd love you to make the case, uh, why does it matter? Why why is it not okay just to be busy and to be context switching all the, all the time? Like what do we know from the psychology, for example, that we lose when we create those kinds of workplaces or learning environments? Yeah, well, I think obviously, hopefully obviously, we lose productivity. Um, but perhaps less obviously, we lose our satisfaction with our work. Um, like something that we have been... I'm less surprised now, but I used to be really surprised by it. So at Inventium, uh, which is um, my consultancy, we have loosely a productivity program, uh, a training program called our Workday Reinvention Program. Mm -hmm. And we designed it to boost productivity of all sorts of people that are working in knowledge work kind of occupations. And what we found in our pilot programs is that as well as getting a productivity boost of about 20%, we actually had a huge boost in job satisfaction. Mm. So 
the thing that really surprised me that came through in our pilot studies was what happened with job satisfaction. And we found that job satisfaction actually increased more than productivity. So we got something like a 30% increase in job satisfaction through helping people work better. So for example, through helping people understand the difference between deep focused work and shallow work, which is less cognitively demanding work, like checking Mm. your email, for example, um, and the importance of monotasking rather than multitasking. Um, And just through applying those things, people end up being a whole lot happier. So the case for trying to reduce the amount of unscheduled um, emails and communication and interruptions is that sure we'll be more productive and that's awesome, but we're going to be a whole lot happier at work. Mm. Mm. And I mean, of course, there's a connection between those two aspects also. I mean, again, in, in your world, less so in the schooling world, but the idea of job satisfaction um, is enormous right now. I mean, I, I don't know if we could say it's like an epidemic of motivation in terms of workplace. I mean, the Gallup polls that come out about, you know, people that feel engaged at work, for example, and, you know, often find that more people are actively disengaged than are actively engaged. And so many of us are just apathetic, like we're neither one nor the other. And so one should ask the question, well, how, how did we get here? How have we created workplaces where people just think, I just, it's just somewhere I go to spend time and do something, as opposed to being a, a way to powerfully contribute to the world. And I think this picks up things like organizational cultures, about the concepts like belonging or relatedness or autonomy and mastery, some of the self-determination theory or others that Daniel Pink have written about, you know, around motivation. What would you say, you know, what, is the, what does a really, and I don't want to even say the word high performing, but what is kind of the workplace of the future? Uh, and what are the features that it has that really enables each of us as human beings, as people, to contribute powerfully and to feel good as we do that? Well, you mentioned self-determination theory, which I love because no one talks about self-determination theory unless you're like an academic in a psych department. Um, and <laughs> certainly for, for the work that we do uh, with the Australian Financial Review, um, obviously uh, sort of Australia's kind of premier business publication mm. um, and the best places to work list, which we, uh, Inventium, designed the, the methodology and assessment. We do all the judging for that list. The framework that we use for assessing entrance is based on self-determination theory. So it really is like going back to the basics, at least based on self-determination theory of human motivation, um, which uh, firstly is is looking at people's need for autonomy to have, you know, freedom to choose how they approach tasks and projects and, you know, even what they work on and how they they work, um, what hours they work. Um, So autonomy is super important. Then mastery um, and learning uh, is... um, the second element of self-determination theory. So making sure that people have the opportunity to feel challenged mm. in their work. Um, you know, like uh, like I think the, the average person um, feels challenged in a good way, like challenged where they're working on something hard, but they've got like the skills and resources to rise to that challenge on average about 44% of the time. Um and in my mind, that's not high enough. Like that's less than half the time. So uh, that's really important. And also for leaders thinking about how do we make sure that people do have the opportunity to keep 
learning and mastering new skills. Um, and then the third element, of course, of self-determination theory, of course, of course for you and course, I, not of course for, 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 for the, the, like the, the non-nerds, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> non um, would, would be um, around connectedness um, and that sort of feeling of belonging, uh, you know, which was has been really tricky in the last year and a half because Definitely. a lot of people have not been co-located or, you know, face-to-face. Um, obviously in Australia we're, we're really fortunate. We were just talking about that before we hit record. Um, but looking at how how are companies creating that sense of belonging and inclusivity and, you know, opportunities for, for real, um, real connection, uh, so we, we also do look at purpose and I know Dan Pink writes about that in drive, um, purpose kind of almost being like the roof of this, um, house of motivation, but mm. that's how we think about it. Like, I think that often leaders can overcomplicate it, but it's like, yeah. you know, we are all humans, um, and we know how to motivate humans based on what, um, decades of psychology research has taught us. So take it back to those three elements and you'll probably be doing some, you know, a pretty good job of things. I'd love you to speak, uh, again, I could, I want to explore so many things like Yerx Dodson, like, you know, you stress and distress and the, the Goldilocks zone of, um, of, well, stimulation, really, the idea of challenge. And it's something that we know in, in learning systems as well, in schools and higher education, you know, the vocational world, it's, you know, if things are too easy or too hard, you're, you're not, you're not going to be powerfully learning and contributing. So there really is this idea. And of course, the best person to judge that often is yourself with support, right? with the triangulation of here's where you are and here's where you might want to go. Um, but there's a concept as well, like if purpose is the, is the roof, I wonder if agency is the floor. Because I, I really think there's something about like, what does it mean to be a great entrepreneur? And we can look around at many examples around the world. What does it mean to be a great kind of change agent or a policymaker or a social impact person? Often it's that, you know, there's a high level of efficacy or this high level of knowing that I can make a difference and therefore I choose to do so. And this concept of choice. And I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot at the moment about agency because it really strikes me that so many of the workforce environments, you know, even the task design, you know, like where jobs aren't co-crafted at all. It's just like, here's your job. Um, and similarly in schools, here's the curriculum, here's, here's the test. You know, just stay in that lane as opposed to there being this really kind of co-design aspect to it. So I'd love you to talk about agency um, as, mm. as much as, as you'd want, but also like what do we as leaders need to do to make sure that we have those pillars that you've taken us through uh, in place? Because until we do, we're not going to be enabling people to thrive and we're actually not going to be as productive as organizations anyway. So for me, agency fits within the autonomy pillar um, very, very clearly. And like how, how I think about that as a leader, and I'm kind of, I'm sort of a pseudo leader. Like I don't actually manage anyone anymore. And I haven't for a couple of years at Inventium I've got an amazing CEO, um, Michelle Lepoitevin. But cool. uh, how, how we think about it at Inventium is that we give people a huge amount of autonomy or agency over what they are there to achieve and what they want to achieve um, and how they're going to achieve that, uh, obviously, like with support and mentoring. So we have our company goals at Inventium. We use OKRs, objectives and key results, um, nice. a la like Intel and Andy mm-hmm. Grove and, you know, then 
brought that. Uh, and then that was brought into Google by John Doerr. Uh, and, you know, for, for listeners that are not familiar yeah. with OKRs, Measure What Matters is a great book to get across that because I think if you're looking for how to give people agency and autonomy, understand OKRs and apply them in your organization. So we have mm. company-level OKRs. So, and and just, so this, yeah. is, this is beyond the KPI chat, for example, right? This is the evolution of that, is it? What's it the- is, yeah. So OKRs, I guess, are the evolution of, of KPIs or key performance indicators. Uh, so, it, it, so people have, um, say, two to five um, big objectives, uh, which are... I guess, more qualitative in nature, like Mm. um, what might it be? Launch this new product, for example. Um, And then key results are quantitative. They're objective in nature. Mm. So it might be, um, you know, sell X number of units at a margin of X percent. And and so things that are just objective. Mm. Uh, And with the key results, there are... There are two types of key results, and I don't know how much into the nitty-gritty we want to get here, but I think it's interesting, um, <laughs> is that there are, um, and, and also misunderstood as well from a lot of people that apply OKRs, is that there are committed OKRs or key results and there are aspirational ones. And so right. the committed ones, it's like you're expected to get 100%. Like if you say, I'm going to sell 100 widgets, you're expected to sell 100 widgets and that's how you would be evaluated at the end of the quarter or six months or whatever time frame you're working to. Sure. Then there are aspirational ones that are really meant to stretch you and this also plays into the mastery component or the challenge component uh, and that's where you're aiming to get 70% uh, in terms of like how this has been applied at places like Google, for example. Sure. So if you're kind of getting 100% on an aspirational goal or key result, uh, you haven't set the bar high enough. Um, and if you're like struggling, then, you know, there's also a problem there as well. So we think about that, uh, and we share our company goals with everyone on the team and then everyone sets their own OKRs, Mm. individual level OKRs. And then that's shared and discussed with Mish, the CEO. Um, she might make some tweaks. She might help people make their key results more objective, for example. And then when it comes time to actually score your performance, people score their own performance. And it's really easy because it's objective. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you did or you didn't because the key results are, um, you know, largely quantitative or numerical. So that's like, I feel like when I talk about that, you know, some some managers are like, what? People score themselves? Um, but it's like that's the ultimate autonomy, isn't it? Yeah, like it is. you know what the, where the company is going. That's really important, and that needs to be set by the by, by the top leadership team. But then you know, give people their own agency or autonomy to decide how are they going to contribute. What's meaningful for them? Mm. Uh, and they might need some help thinking about that, and that's cool. Um, and then, like, if everything's clear, then they should be able to self-assess in a pretty accurate way. Mm. Gosh, Mathis, it's great that we can get to that level of detail as well because it's easy to talk conceptually, but it's ultimately, you know, measure what matters and the metrics as well that we set, the goals that we set. Because um, if we don't set them, they're still there. They're just hidden, <laughs> part of the hidden grammar of an organization perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I would love you to take us uh, through where we are into the future. What do you see as the emerging mainstream of organizational design? You know, like, for example, some listeners might know about Zappos and the kind of holacracy experiment of 
how do you dissolve kind of the whole idea of having a hierarchy in the first place, create swarms and the idea around projects. I mean, but that, that seems so challenging as well because that's kind of quite a long way down that spectrum. But if we were having this chat in you know, 10 years' time, where do you think companies will be? Knowing that, you know, Scott Galloway and others have talked about the great acceleration and you know, 10 years of change in workplace environments in eight weeks um, because of the pandemic. What, what, are you, what are you seeing kind of on the horizon that we should pay attention to? Hmm. Well, I am a big fan of the holacracy and we do run that at Inventium and have done for, I don't know, three or four years now. Uh, something that we have done for nearly a year now at Inventium is do a four-day week. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with the four-day week, it originated with Andrew Barnes at Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand. And it's basically um, 100% productivity. So as if you're a full-timer, what you'd be expected to achieve as a full-timer, but in 80% of the time, so four normal length days for 100% remuneration. So you're paid a full-time salary. And I'm seeing that, like that movement over the last couple of years, mm. you know, since that's got a lot, that got a lot of publicity, like when, when Andrew initially did his pilot study, uh, I'm seeing that's kind of, it's like it's certainly not mainstream, yeah. but I would like to think that movements like that, that are really um, prioritising output over hours, which is really easy to say but really hard yeah. to do and internalise as a leader, I think, um, particularly when you're working in nebulous domains of like, you know, working with knowledge workers, for yeah. example, it's really hard to shift that mindset. So I would, I would like to think that there would be more and more of a shift to going, it's about output and hours don't matter. Mm. And I think that that is particularly important given hybrid work is clearly the way of the future, but I think that people underestimate how challenging hybrid work is going to be. Like I think yeah. people are like, oh, well, it's, it's easy. We know how to work from home. We trust people to work from home and now we'll get back in the office two or three days a week. And, you know, I'm seeing some organisations mandating the number of days that people are in the office and others not and, you know, all, all sorts of combinations. But, yeah. you know, what we know from research, and look, granted, this is research that was um, pre-COVID, but people that put in more FaceTime at the office are favoured for things like pay and promotion right. because people default to hours and when you can see someone working, you automatically unconsciously think, assume think that they are being more productive. Yeah. Right, and that yeah. they are a better worker than yeah. the person that is working from home and who knows could just be binging on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm. a, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it really seems like the paradigm shift that's required, right? The idea of this kind of factory model of the punch card, you know, you punch in, you punch out, or, you know, if you're junior in an organization, you're first in and you're last out and that's the expectation. And some, some industries do this better and poorer than others, perhaps. Um, so then what's, how do we accelerate that change? Because I think clearly COVID has accelerated the work from home movement. That's, not, that's definitely the case. Mm -hmm. But I'm not yet convinced that we've seen the same shift in, in kind of out, that kind of, as you talk about hours versus output or even output versus outcome. You know, can, you, can you leverage you know, what you do in a way that's actually, and again, the more that we step into the knowledge and the creative economy and away from anything that's, that's routine in terms of a, a manual and a cognitive sense, the more important that's going to be. I think it's going to be harder to quantify like mm. inspiration or genius potentially. 
Wait, what would you say yeah, to this? I reckon it's about how you set people's goals, like whether you're, you know, using the OKR framework or KPIs or whatever. It's like it has to come back to what people's goals are, like what they're there to achieve at the end of the day. Like, for example, you know, I, I think about, and granted, like I have so little to do with the education sector in my job. So like, you know, forgive my ignorance. I'm just a parent. I'm a mere parent with a child <laughs> in grade two. Um, but I do, you know, I do think about these things from a parent's point of view. Sure, and great. it's like, you know, obviously like you've got, um, you know, if you're a teacher and I'm thinking about the goals of a teacher, like Obvious is academic performance. Yes, great. That's important. But then, you know, there's there's so much emphasis on well-being and, you know, everything that's, you know, um, like around bullying and consent and, you know, everything that's sort of like occupying, um, you know, the media at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it's like, what are the metrics around that? Like, yeah. I don't know of students that are being given like surveys to talk about their level of well-being and how that's being contributed to by leaders at a school, for example. But I would think like that should be a really important goal of teachers to contribute to that, but nobody's measuring that. So how do we know if they're doing a good job? And so again, like this is where it's about output, not hours. Like I don't need like my, you know, teachers at my daughter's school, like working crazy hours. Um, it's mm. about the output. Like that's that's what I see. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I kind of like I do think about that. Like what what are schools actually measuring and how clear are the goals that teachers are being set above and beyond the obvious stuff like academic performance? Mm. I don't know if that's a completely ignorant and ill-informed comment no. as a parent and someone that has nothing to do with schools, but that's my thoughts. Well, I mean, Amanda, it's, it's a fair comment. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that that many schools are exploring this because as educators, we know it. We know that human development is always multidimensional. But I feel, and this is kind of this question, you know, we've all inherited legacy social systems and structures and paradigms that are part of that, right? These kind of belief systems that in some ways are not expressed explicitly. It's just part of what you, you turn up. It's like, well, this is what we do here. Uh, and so that's the case with systems in education is that the primacy of the cognitive still reigns supreme and I think to the detriment of human growth and development because you as an expert on innovation and on organizational culture and psychology, you know, when you feel good, you are actually more creative. Like we know this and yet, so the whole idea of just grind through or be resilient, like it doesn't hold true, particularly as we move into kind of the future of work for work, you know, conversation. So. I just think the challenge, I think, actually, is how do we take the best things that are working now across Australia and across the world and make them the core things, as opposed to say, here's a school that uses iYarn, right, which is a compass that tests all these different dimensions using a life wheel. It's student-led, so they're saying, this is how I'm feeling across all these dimensions. But of course, that's not, rep- that's not represented in systems, certainly re- not represented in media in terms of like, what are the results? Well, we know what the results are. It's PISA or it's NAPLAN or it's PADN or PADR. It's literacy and numeracy because they're easiest to measure and they're very important, but they're not sufficient. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's my question to you. I think from your vantage point in terms of being like embedded in industry and in the innovation space, I really feel like this is a huge stakeholder group that is actually shifting education now because we're seeing industry saying, well, yeah, great that you've got your qualification, but 
we care about these types of skills, your social, your emotional, and your technical mm -hmm. skills, because we know that you're ultimately trainable. And so, you know, what, what are you seeing from an industry lens? Because I think part of it is the, the make, creating a better connection between education systems and the workforce or industry as well that are starting to drive more and more of this conversation. Yeah. Look, I mean, God, don't get me started about creativity in education. Like, I mean, that's that's a whole other get started on domain. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, I yeah. like, you know, and another book that um gosh, I've got this here like in front of me as well. Um, that like, you know, from where we started, what are the things that I'm thinking about and what are the things that I'm learning? Um, mm -hmm. I'm a huge Adam Grant fan, yeah. organizational psychologist and Wharton professor and best-selling author, and I Loved his latest book. Um, Think again. Just reaching over to now. I don't know if you've read it. Think again. Mm. Um, and again, like I, I read that uh, a few weeks ago because I'd had Adam back on how I work recently. And wow. you know, it's it's all about uh, the subtitle is the power of knowing what you don't know, and mm. it's all about challenging your thinking. And I feel so. Let me just turn Siri off again, just so I just that's not influencing sound. Um, right. So. I think that school is really good at getting people to learn set curriculum and know certain facts um, and this is the kind of correct way of doing things. And certainly, obviously, there's a role for that when it comes to maths. There's a right and a wrong way. Spelling, grammar, there's a right and a wrong way. Um, but, like, for me, like, as a parent, I want to know about, how how is my daughter being challenged to think differently and being encouraged, particularly in the later years? I mean, you know, in grade two, she's got she's as creative creative as they come. Like my yeah. uh, like a parent teacher interviews um, her amazing teacher uh, who I love um, is like Frankie's just got too many ideas. She needs to just <laughs> commit. She just needs to commit to an idea. And I'm like, okay, um, but um, you know, particularly in the later years, it's yeah. like how. Are people being like a student's being like encouraged to challenge thinking, mm. to, to challenge the teacher's thinking on something, to challenge the curriculum? Um, how are they being taught to question their thinking? And, um, you know, and obviously like creativity is a huge part of that. Um, and then how are we assessing that? Because yeah. that's not easy to assess, but it's so important. There's the great um, divergent thinking test that you might have, I'm sure you probably know about, you know, NASA. I'm not sure who, who developed it initially. Um, but of course, what they find is that kindergartners and early childhood young people uh, outperform everybody. Uh, and so in some ways, creativity is as much about protecting creativity as it is mm. about developing it. Because So true. Yeah, like your, your, two -year -old, yeah, your year two daughter, yeah, I'm sure wandering around with these wonderful ideas that, you know, um, I'm sure someone will be like, we need to commercialize that at some point, you know, because it's really clever, <laughs> right? So yeah, it, it's true. It's, it's this idea, Yong Zhao, he talks about, you know, the sausage model maker. Uh, the sausage maker model of education, mm. and we have this diversity which actually we place in, and we and we know standardizing. And it's it's not because leaders and educators aren't all trying their best. It's because we've been straddled with this control and command system, which we've inherited through the paradigm in which it emerged. Right? System isn't broken. It functions as it was designed to function. It's just no longer fit for purpose. And so that's the big question: is how do we shift this in every school in the world, in every school in Australia? And I think we can look at some of those really key levers to do it. Industry advocating on the one hand saying we're caring more about this. Let's move beyond the kind of, you know, the standardization agenda. How do we have one education system and have 300,000 different learner journeys 
for all the senior secondary students that are going through it, you know, where they might be able to, mm. to determine, to self-determine, like, you know, what are they interested in? What's their passion? What do they want to learn more about? Mm. How do they set their own ambitious goals and meet that? Because when we set our own ambitious goal, well, actually we're going to outperform any other expectations of ourselves too. So mm. I, it, it's just such a really interesting conversation um, because I think education is really the bedrock of, of so much of our society um, and yet kind of economics and, and the workplace is, is just such a, such a strong contextual backdrop as well. So that's my, my next question, Amantha, is just what needs to change in the world of business, do you think, structurally, that enables us to accelerate towards the four-day work week, towards a place where, you know, the best place to work, for example, is a really great initiative because it's saying this is what success is. It's not just financials or it's not just growth. Um, mm. It's actually do your people love to work every single day, mm. considering it's such a big mm. part of our lives? So mm-hmm. what, if, what have you been discovering through that, you know? Gosh, I, like it's such a big question. What needs to change? Um, well, I mean, an obvious one is that managers need to trust their people and they need mm. to recruit people that they trust uh, because a four-day week would never happen unless there's trust. Mm. Uh, again, I come back to um, output or outcomes versus hours. That that needs to change. Um, it's it's really hard for leaders to get their heads around, hang on, how can people be productive if they're losing a day? Like how does that work? Mm. Um, so that that is very challenging. And I think that, you know, organizations need to see these skills as trainable it's not like you can just snap your fingers and go hey fit five days worth of work into four Mm. go um like that doesn't happen and I think I like you know I know that firsthand because like we literally train thousands of people in how to use their time more wisely um and how to you know be more productive and um you know better at using the hours that they've got in the day uh and I think for me, like I've also learned that through, so with the How I Work podcast, I'm coming up to three years of doing that. And what I do on that show is I interview high performers from all different fields, like, like CEOs, entrepreneurs, musicians, actors, um, okay. politicians, all sorts. Um, and I understand, well, I started with the hypothesis. It's like these people, the people that I interview are incredibly high achieving in their field, but they've got the same amount of hours in the day as everybody else. So surely they're using their time in a different way. And, you know, the answer that I get time and time again is yes. Like they're really thinking about their time much more deliberately than the yeah. average person. Like it just like, it drives me nuts. Like when I hear people mm. go, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And I kind of go, yeah, but like are you using your time wisely and yeah. are you really obsessing with how you use your time and being protective, like of, you know, even just what you say yes to. Like I, I, I heard someone at a conference say, saying no is the best productivity hack out there. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That is the brain dump of things that I think, um, you know, need to change. Are on, the, are on that, yeah, on, on that agenda. And I think they, well, they will, I think, because more and more these use cases I think are being created, right? He's a company that's, that's successful and people are using their time well. I do want just a quick response from you around, digital agency or productivity in the digital age because it, you know, there's lots of attention from the Center for Humane Technology, you know, um, 
a whole time well spent. Like a whole, there's a whole range of technologists saying we've designed the most addictive tools ever, and to extract attention. And in, in actually, it's it's kind of it's great for those big companies, but it's not necessarily good for productivity or for presence. Yeah, I, I would come back to. Uh, I, I mean, I think that people, everyone needs to read a world without email by Cal Newport, and it's like stop trying to solve the problem with like you know productivity hacks and granted like yeah. I'm a fan of productivity hacks but it's like saying to someone just check email twice a day it's like yeah. generally doesn't work because there is something compelling us to do it more than that and a lot of things are broken in the system so instead go back to the root and think about what are better workflows and processes that you could put in place to actually reduce the volume of email for example um and the the volume of distractions and unscheduled communication that you're receiving. So I think that um, that is a very good place to start. Mm, brilliant. Uh, Amantha, gosh, that went fast. There's so many great concepts in that. I'd, I'd love you to leave our listeners with just amusing, like a take-home message um, from, you know, the really exciting and interesting work you're doing on the cutting edge of, of innovation and organisations. Gosh. What is a take-home message? Um, look, for me, I, um, I'm very much about sort of practical strategies as opposed to big abstract ideas that just seems that's my preference in how I think. And sure. something I think about a lot in terms of a practical strategy that we use with a lot of our clients and that it baffles me why schools do not think about this, or maybe they do, but they just don't do anything with it, is the concept of chronotypes. Um, so chronotype, for those that haven't heard of that concept, basically refers to our sleep-wake patterns over a 24-hour period, like when our brain is at its peak and when it's not. Um, so there are uh, three, broadly speaking, um, chronotypes. There's larks, people that, you know, uh, thrive in the morning, they wake up at five without an alarm. There are owls who come to life at night, do their best work, you know, well into the early hours of the morning. Mm. And then there are middle birds that follow the same pattern of a lark, um, just delayed by a couple of hours, probably waking up at seven in the morning naturally, for example. And we know that um, teenagers, for example, and our chronotype sort of changes depending on how old we are. It is largely genetically predetermined though, but teenagers are typically quite owl-like. Um, in their chronotype, yet schools are designed for larks and middle birds. And so schools are not getting the best out of owls, out of teenagers by and large. Mm. Um, and I get that we're trying to work around the corporate world and the nine to five world to an extent with like the hours of schools. And I understand all this um, and I understand that it's complex, but I think that if educators thought more about the impact that chronotype has on learning um, that they would do a good job getting even better outcomes by helping people do the big heavy lifting, like cognitively heavy lifting tasks when people are at their peak rather than when people are at their worst, which for teenagers is generally in the morning. Mm, that's a fantastic uh, way to finish the podcast and really think about one of the vitality factors of sleep, right, alongside nutrition and movement. Mm -hmm which historically systems haven't really thought about intentionally. Uh, and so here's to a sleep-in for all the teenagers. I'm sure they're agreeing with you as well. <laughs> Amantha, yes. it's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.